Their names were known across the land. They were the banner carriers for their respective parties and represented the electoral and ideological hopes of those backing them. Much in the same way as they had led troops to battle, so too did these two men come to lead their parties through the political battles of the 1820s through the 1840s. It is little wonder, then, that they ended up in opposition. But was it always that way? That's the question we're going to answer on this episode of the Harrison Podcast as we look into the relationship between Andrew Jackson and William Henry Harrison. Welcome, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. When the general public tends to think of the pre-Civil War South, it does seem to have one conception of it. Large plantations with whites in the big house and enslaved people of color out in the field. Thus, considering that Harrison and Jackson were both from the South, one might assume that their upbringings were much the same. However, that couldn't be further from the truth. As we discussed way back in episode 12, Harrison was born and raised in Tidewater, Virginia to an affluent and prominent family. Andrew Jackson, on the other hand, was born in the Waxhaws, so named because of the nearby Waxhaw Creek, a branch of the Catawba River. It is not known, nor will it likely ever be known, whether Jackson was born in North Carolina or South Carolina, as Jackson's mother Elizabeth was on her way to her sister's home in South Carolina when she had Andrew, and it is unclear as to whether she gave birth at her sister's home or at a house along the way. Whereas Harrison, for better or worse, had his father around for his formative years, Jackson's father died before he was born. So Jackson ended up growing up under his mother's instruction at his aunt and uncle's home until he was old enough to attend a formal academy. While Harrison was brought up to take his place in Virginia society and to seek a profession in medicine, Jackson's mother had dreams of her son becoming a minister. But, as noted by Jackson biographer Robert Remini, Quote, she soon spotted signs that his interests and instincts were far removed from matters ecclesiastical. To begin with, even at a tender age, he swore a blue streak, fine, lovely, blood-curdling oaths that could frighten people half to death, hardly the language of a budding clergyman. This certainly sounds like a stark contrast to young Billy Harrison reciting Cicero in school. Though, to be fair, there is little that we know about Harrison's earliest years. In any event, the differences between the upbringings of these two men might in some ways explain some of their later conflicts. Both, however, would turn to the military to make their way in the world, though Harrison's first experience in battle would be by choice, while Jackson's would be by necessity. Jackson learned militia, quote, drills and exercises at an early age and took to the field as British forces threatened him and his family. As noted by Remini, he first saw battle at the age of 13 at the Battle of Hanging Rock, though, quote, it is unlikely he did more than attend the troops and perhaps carry messages. Following the Revolutionary War, Jackson would make his way in the world outside of the military, but the coming of war in the 18-teens would draw him back into service. In fact, it would be to Harrison that Jackson would write in late 1811 to volunteer his services after hearing of Harrison's call for troops to march against Prophetstown. But by the time Jackson was writing, the Battle of Tippecanoe had already been fought and won. It would not be long, though, before Congress would call for 50,000 volunteers to be enlisted. And Jackson worked beginning on March 7, 1812, to organize volunteers, ultimately gathering 2,500 to serve the nation. 
However, due to Jackson's role in the conspiracy of Aaron Byrd during Jefferson's presidency, something far beyond the scope of this episode, but that I imagine will be popping up over at my other podcast, The Presidencies of the United States, it took Jackson a while to secure a commission for himself. Finally, thanks to Tennessee Governor William Blount, Jackson was named a Major General of U.S. Volunteers in October 1812 and was given orders to lead his volunteers to New Orleans. Now, Jackson wouldn't make it to New Orleans just yet, as while he and his 2,000-plus strong force was making its way down the river, he received orders to remain in Natchez. Then, as Harrison would soon after, would find himself in a dispute with the new Secretary of War, John Armstrong, as Armstrong ordered him on February 5, 1813 to, quote, consider your command as dismissed from public service and take measures to have it delivered over to Major General Wilkinson, along with all articles of public property which may have been put into its possession. If you think that Andrew Jackson's going to be mustered out of the service before he's darn good and ready, then you don't know Andrew Jackson. He instead ignored Armstrong's order and marched his troops to Nashville. Once there, he received word of an attack carried out against Fort Mims by the Muscogee Nation, known to non-native groups as the Creek, and Jackson called his forces into action and was authorized by Governor Blount to call up 2,500 volunteers. He would spend the next year and change fighting native forces in what is now the Gulf South, where the Muskogee would dub the general, quote, Jackson translated as Jackson Old and Fierce. In 1814, not only Harrison, but a number of generals would resign from the service, which meant that Jackson had seniority and would be granted command of the 7th Military District in 1814. Part of the seniority that put him in position to take over this command was due to the fact that, after Harrison's resignation, Secretary of War Armstrong awarded Harrison's rank of Major General to Jackson on May 28th. This was Jackson's chance to prove himself capable of high command. So what did he do with this newfound position? Well, without orders from the federal government, Jackson marched into Spanish-held Florida and took Pensacola, because new military commanders always try to stir up greater international conflict while their country is already involved in one war. Of course. Thus, both Jackson and Harrison launched military operations into foreign territories, but Harrison launched his into territory held by the nation with which we were actually at war. To be fair, the Spanish governor at Pensacola had invited British forces to land at the settlement, which did technically violate their neutrality. But at least with his second invasion of Florida, Jackson had more of a leg to stand on. With this one, he admitted in a letter of October 26, 1814, to then-Secretary of War James Monroe that, quote, I act without the orders of the government. But I digress. While it is beyond the scope of this episode to go into a full account of Jackson's military record, he would finally make his way back to New Orleans and earn widespread national fame for successfully defending that city from a British invasion. Harrison and Jackson would both come out of the War of 1812 with mostly good reputations and a record of winning battles, though only Jackson would still be in service at the end of it. After a war where the reputations of a number of high-ranking military and civilian officials had been damaged by failures both on and off the field, the stage was set for these new players to make their marks on the nation. Harrison would soon, after the end of the war, make his way to Congress, in part to defend his war record. 
It would be this congressional service that would lead to Jackson's first reason for developing animosity towards the man from North Bend. After Monroe assumed office as the fifth president of the United States, Jackson was still in command of military forces along the southern border in the southeast. Both Monroe and Jackson had their eyes squarely on Florida, and not just for expansionist reasons. Florida acted as a safe haven for two groups. Seminole raiders who would cross the border and attack settlements in Georgia, then retreat to Florida, where U.S. forces could not follow them, and individuals escaping from enslavement who had established a fort and settlement along the Apalachicola River. The U.S. government had, at numerous points, attempted to purchase Florida, but the Spanish had proved reluctant to sell another part of their dwindling empire. Thus, the issue remained a quandary for mainstream American leaders, but Andrew Jackson, was far from mainstream, and he saw one easy solution to all of this. Why not just invade Florida? He put that question to President Monroe on January 6, 1818, and, through a sequence of events that we don't have time to explore in detail here, received what he was later able to point to as tactic approval to move into Florida. On January 22nd, Jackson led his troops on the march and spent that winter and spring taking over the fort of the escaped slaves, then doing battle with Seminole forces and dismantling Spanish control over the colony. By June 2nd, he was able to write to Monroe of his victory after delivering a mighty blow to Seminole forces and pushing aside Spanish authority in Florida. Besides the ignoring Spanish sovereignty and invading the territory of a nation that we were not at war with, you know, those little details, Jackson compounded the international fracas by executing two British traders in Florida. Harrison would be drawn into this as he was in the U.S. House of Representatives at the time, and two motions to censure Jackson came before the House, one for each of the men executed. Harrison's experience in the Army led him to look at the situation differently than his other fellow legislators, and he would prove to be the only representative to split his vote voting for censuring Jackson on the death of one of the British traitors, but not the other. The reason for this is that the two traitors had been subjected to a court-martial, though the legality of trying foreign civilians as such is highly suspect. The court-martial had recommended the execution of one, but not the other, and thus, Harrison felt that Jackson was sustained in the execution of that British traitor that had been recommended for execution. Harrison's halfway support of Jackson would not endear him to Old Hickory, however, and their relations would only sour further. As discussed in episode 25, Harrison, who had been seeking appointment to a higher office for some time during the 1820s, had finally, at the end of the decade, been able to secure an appointment as U.S. Minister to Columbia. However, his appointment was towards the end of John Quincy Adams' first and what would prove to ultimately be his only term, and Jackson only seven days after he took office, would appoint Representative Thomas Patrick Moore of Kentucky to replace Harrison in Bogota. They would at least give Harrison a bit more time on the job, with his official letter of recall not being issued until June 2nd. This recall dashed Harrison's hopes of using his appointed position to attain financial stability. And after a brief meeting at the executive mansion upon Harrison's return to the United States, the 1830s would find the two men increasingly throwing verbal jabs towards one another. There would be one more time when the two would find themselves on the same side, though. 
During the nullification crisis, in which the state of South Carolina claimed the authority to nullify a federal tariff law that they disagreed with and threatened to secede if their demands were not met, Harrison wrote to then-Secretary of War Lewis Cass following a strongly worded proclamation issued by Jackson demanding that the people of South Carolina respect federal authority or pay the consequences. Harrison wrote that, quote, I hope to heaven that the president will adhere to the principle of his proclamation. He will be supported by the great majority of the American people. I can answer for Indiana, and if need be, I will abandon my farm and take the rounds amongst the boys. It has been for my country that I have endeavored to fix these principles, and in that cause I would spend my last breath. Just over a year later, on June 16, 1834, Harrison was writing Senator George Poindexter of Mississippi that Jackson's, quote, conduct in Florida was not that of a Republican general. Jackson, meanwhile, would deride Harrison as, quote, Clay's stool pigeon after he was nominated as president by the Anti-Masonic Party in 1835. And considering Jackson's feelings towards Clay, it was meant as a huge insult. As the nation drew closer to the pivotal 1840 election, however, the insults started flying even faster and ultimately became public. Jackson, realizing that his hand-picked successor, incumbent President Martin Van Buren, was facing a tough challenge by Harrison, wrote a letter on June 23, 1840, to the editor of the Nashville Union in a letter that he intended for public consumption, asserting that he had, quote, never admired General Harrison as a military man, or considered him as possessing the qualities which constitute the commander of an army. In a speech in October, Old Hickory referred to Harrison as, quote, the chosen candidate of the apostate Republicans, the abolitionist, and the Hartford Convention Federalist, and your constitutional liberties are perhaps gone forever and may end like that of ancient republics upon Harrison's election. While Harrison would hold his fire during the campaign and keep his appearances more upbeat, he would strike back at Jackson in his inauguration speech. He point-blank accused Jackson of having, while president, unduly used the veto power to coerce Congress to get his way. This was an unprecedented attack on a previous president in the inaugural. Harrison continued on by criticizing the way previous administrations, <coughs> Jackson's, of using the, quote, appointing power to bring under its control the whole revenues of the country. This was a reference to how Jackson had gone through a couple of secretaries of the Treasury before finally finding one willing to remove the federal deposits from the Bank of the United States during the Bank War. Harrison was drawing a clear line in the sand between him and Andrew Jackson. Thankfully for Harrison, Jackson was at this point quite elderly and thus couldn't challenge him on the ballot or on the dueling ground, though I wouldn't be surprised if both thoughts, especially the dueling thing, hadn't crossed Jackson's mind when he read Harrison's speech. Jackson would not have much time to see that the Hermitage over, quote, the mock hero, as he had taken to referring to Harrison, as Harrison's tenure in office would prove to be much shorter than anyone could have imagined. Upon hearing the news of Harrison's demise, Jackson wrote to Francis Blair that, quote, a kind and overruling providence has interfered to prolong our glorious union and happy Republican system, which General Harrison and his cabinet was preparing to destroy under the dictation of that profligate demagogue, Henry Clay. Definitely no love lost there. 
So what made relations between these two men turn out to be so bitter and antagonistic? There are a number of possibilities. Considering that the rise to fame for both men came from the same war, and both had their political base in what was then the Western U.S., they were in some ways competing for the same audience. Though they had grown up 300 or so miles from one another, their vastly different backgrounds arguably could account for some of the differences in their worldviews and political ideologies. The political developments of the time can be looked at as having been a contributing factor as well. Ultimately, this is a subject that I'd like to research in further detail before drawing any conclusions, as I think it is an important one in understanding Harrison. While Harrison certainly had ideas of his own, as his rise to the presidency came after Andrew Jackson's, and Jackson in his ascendancy had reshaped and put his mark on the American political landscape, in order for Harrison to become the ninth president, in his approach to the campaign and his shaping of his agenda as president, had to respond to Jackson and Jacksonian ideas. Though never a close personal relationship, understanding the ideological and political relationship and debate between Andrew Jackson and William Henry Harrison can, in my humble opinion, provide great insight into the United States of the 1830s and 1840s, and I look forward to continuing to delve into researching that question. For now, though, we must draw this episode to a close. As always, I'd like to thank our audio editor, Andrew Foncook, for his work on this episode. I couldn't do what I do without him. If you, like me, could use Andrew's assistance with your podcast or next audio project, reach out to him at Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, I can be reached via email at HarrisonPodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And my handle on Facebook and Twitter is Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. For the sources used for this episode, as well as to see all of our subscription options to ensure that you don't miss a single episode, head over to the website at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Thank you so much for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time.